0: Well, in the Pelichowski home, our youngest, just a little over one years of age, has been all week, little Noah, all week, chanting, humming, whatever you want to call it, ah, 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 ah. little over one. He can't say a lot of words, but he knows that. And no matter how exciting the Super Bowl was this last week, and it was oh, the fun and excitement and rejoicing that, that our team won, I want us to be thinking about, even with the recent news and the headlines of revival, that God has always pointed to Glorious reality of people being saved as we saw in Lost and Found. People worshiping him. And the anticipation of the return of Christ as we just sung. That these things are, are, are even more exciting. A Lord's Day worship service. Oh, oh no, How we, we had fun with the Super Bowl. But a Lord's Day worship service is so significant. is so weighty. God uses times like this to lift up his saints to give them strength to give life, spiritual life, to those who were dead. Let us go to God in prayer with anticipation of what he's doing already and what he might do through the rest of this service. Pray with me, church. Our Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that you are real and that you are alive and that you do wonderful, mighty things all throughout the land and you do them in a particularly unique kind of way when your word is preached and songs are sung and the ordinances are observed and people pray together as a group, you do it in services like this. Would you Would you revive us once again? Would you... Cause us to long for you, love you, worship you. Would you show us in Matthew what you'd have for us today? Thank you for revealing to us the gospel of Matthew and all its intricacies and all its truth. Would you show us more today? Would you use it for our good? Would you use it to bring those maybe who are here that are spiritually dead life? Would you use it to those who may be here spiritually discouraged? Strength and upbuilding. Lord, lead us today. We say this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope you have all been picking up on the theme in our series in Matthew of Jesus's exclusivity. He's the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only life met with opponents who reject him. As we've been clearly seeing that Jesus is not born in order to be a way, but because he is the way. And the kingdom has not come and then the kingdom was not demonstrated with great power simply to give another option amongst many valid options. No, Jesus was on an urgent rescue mission as the only way, truth, and life, he was the final and is the final answer. But we've not only seen severe opposition, from the religious leaders, we also see a kind of shocking indifference and apathy from many in the crowds and cities that he went to and saw his miracles. And after all that Jesus did in their towns, these people just went on about their lives as if nothing happened. Failing to see in Jesus the answer and solution and carrying on about without repenting of their sin, and without following Jesus. So it wasn't just these vocal opponents who were the problem. Not at all. Because to Jesus, anything less than exclusive discipleship, as we saw earlier in our series, Jesus over family and friends and even life itself, nothing else was an option but that. As the rebuke to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.16 reveals... So, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Many in these towns were neither hot or cold, but lukewarm and ignored and rejected Jesus and his disciples' warning to repent. Think of a severe hurricane that we read about in the news or a a big tornado that comes through and ravages a town. Can you imagine if someone went to that place prior to the start of this cataclysmic natural disaster and began warning that a storm or tornado was about to hit that town. But not only would it hit the town, it would destroy their very homes and their very families would perish. And this person also had the means to take them out of the disastrous path and offered safety to them and peace. Only then for those people in town to might either attack and shoo off the helper like he was a mangy dog, or yawn in indifference and simply not believe that things were gonna be as bad as this person told them. This is the predicament that these towns that Jesus went to, were in. As a matter of fact, this is the predicament that all towns everywhere, including right here in Gallatin, Missouri, and all the other towns across the world as well, those who've especially heard gospel preaching, that judgment is coming, and that a Savior is calling, if they ignore, they're just like these towns in Jesus' day do you want to escape the ravaging storm and destructive tornado of future judgment? You might respond, we aren't like those towns here. We have lots of churches and many who like Jesus. The great majority of our town may pay lip service to their belief in God even and depreciation for Jesus. They may post about it on their social media feeds, they may have crosses in their homes and mark the answer on the survey, Christian. Yeah, all that may be well and good, but does it make any difference in their lives? Does it make any difference in your life? Are they actually following the real Jesus and his word or just knowing about him and practically ignoring him in their day-to-day lives? Makes no difference. We may boast about a religious town with lots of people knowing about Jesus, but simply knowing about Jesus doesn't make matters any better for anybody. It actually makes matters far worse because knowing about Jesus without following him and doing what he says puts us in the category of these towns who witnessed Jesus and knew all about him but ignored the storm warning and failed to repent. Let's see what Jesus thought about a town or towns like that from our text. In Matthew chapter 11, in point number one, greater knowledge, greater judgment. Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24 says this, hear the word of the Lord. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Terezin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre, in Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. for the land of Sodom than for you. Greater knowledge equals greater judgment. Talk about a compare and contrast lesson. Jesus wasn't afraid to call people out for not following him. And I think we lose the weight of his argument if we fail to understand sin correctly. What do I mean by that? (laughs) Because you might think sin is not too hard to figure out. Everyone knows that sin is missing the mark that God has set and breaking his law. True enough, but there's more to be said. And there's much confusion about the real nature of sin that even Christians seem to regularly explain it away and lessen the full biblical teaching on the matter By their said explaining it away. And sadly, many settle for Christian cliches rather than biblical truth. You've heard and maybe even said, all sin is equal in God's eyes. Right? I know this because I've heard it referred to so many times before. This is a well worn Christian cliche. But we must. Always be careful to not think and say things that are unbiblical. And that's the issue with cliches. They can kind of get rooted in a mantra. Just like bad lyrics to a song are so dangerous because it's just over and over, which is why we seek to put forth biblical songs here at First Baptist Church, cliches could just make their way into our thinking and worldview. And if they're not biblical, they have no place being there. And this compare and contrast lesson between the cities that Jesus did his miracles compared with Tyre and Sidon which were wicked cities with wicked people judged by God in the Old Testament. God judged them. Or that of Sodom which Jesus mentioned earlier in the very same way in chapter 10 related to those cities who, rejecting, who were rejecting his gospel farmers or his disciples, remember that? Does Jesus say in these instances that all sin is equal in God's eyes here in this passage in Matthew 11 and in Matthew 10? Does he say that? Not at all. Rather, he, com- he does this compare and contrast lesson to reveal Degrees of judgment and punishment in hell. Apparently there's bad and worse sins as he identifies them from a biblical worldview, from Jesus's view. He says that those who have more knowledge and revelation of him and his ministry and then still reject him are worse off than the most vile and heinous cities in the Old Testament. Here's the shocking and bewildering thing. Jesus ranks the respectable, as Jerry Bridges calls them, sins, or less noticeable sins of people who have access to him as even worse than the most vile and heinous cities of the Old Testament that didn't have access to him. There'd be greater judgment. That's that's a shocking thing. It would have shocked the hearers of the day And it should shock us as well. We need to be thinking in a biblical worldview and understand the weight of things. He's like, those bad cities would have repented and believed long ago if I had done in their towns what I've done in your town. They would not have yawned like you. They would not have been indifferent, but would have repented if they were as privileged as you to witness my Miracles is what Jesus is telling them. But, but you're so hard-hearted. You are so blind and spiritually lazy that you would ignore your only rescue of coming judgment. That's what he's telling these towns. Now, a passage like this should be enough to obliterate this cliche that how, somehow all sin is just kind of this mass of just, oh, it's a sin. Out there, it's just sin, general sin, just all in a bucket. But I need to go on and clarify a little bit more because I know that there's a lot of confusion on this. As we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus likened lust, for instance, to secret adultery and anger to secret murder, he was not flattening out sin and perpetuating this cliché. Rather, he was pointing out that even the inner desires that lead to outer actions are sinful and need to be repented of at its core, even at the desire or or even that before any action even happens. So I want us to be humbled by our sin, both the internal actions and external manifestations, thoughts and desires and actions, but this is what Jesus is putting forward, but he's in no way claiming that the degrees of sin between the two were exactly the same and kind of flattening out sin or the consequences were exactly the same. I mean, he argues later in the book of Matthew, and, and the, we've seen it already and he'll see, we'll see it again, that, that physical act of adultery is grounds for divorce uh, and, and other sins maybe in marriage that, that someone might complain about that, that isn't rooted in Scripture Aren't seen as the same kind of covenant-breaking grounds. There are exceptions for the divorce till death do us part, ideal and pursuit of the Christian life and worldview. But there are certain things that that rise up and and and, and, and make it so that there's there's a, there's there's a breaking of covenant. And we see degrees of sexual sin identified in the Bible, in Romans one, for instance. This. Continuing on of more and more sin and God giving them over to further and further debasing of their bodies one to another. Uh, people going away from the plan of God and what he identified in, in initially in the garden. And, and exchanging it for, for immoral practices, men with men, women with men. We see this just degrees of, of more and more wickedness. Or in First Corinthians 5, those of us who are reading the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading, for instance, we just read it a day or two ago, and in, in that passage, the man was excommunicated from the church and called to be excommunicated by Paul who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Paul says that there's a different level of wickedness that must be re- repented of and disciplined if not repented of, And he doesn't discipline someone for other kind of truly sinful acts as well. There are different types of degrees. Not all sin would warrant church discipline in this case. So if a church member got angry, for instance, and said something that was mean and sinful, that church member should repent of their sin. And if it's not a pattern of that kind of behavior, it, it wouldn't warrant this kind of church discipline in the same way that, that differing levels of sexual immorality, we see these types of things. And think of David, just think of David. His initial lust on the rooftop was indeed sin that needed to be repented of, right? You know the story of David. And if he had repented at that initial sinful impulse, things would have been a lot better for him and everyone else around him Had he not gone on, which he did, and progressed down the line of more and more greater heinous sin and guilt. It's this kind of slippery slope downward from the initial temptation and the initial lust even internally to more and more severe consequences and, and severe actions. For instance, he would not have summoned Bathsheba to engage in grave immorality for him to take her in that way and gotten her pregnant uh, and she wasn't his wife, he wouldn't have done that and he wouldn't have been implicated in his deceitful cover-up to murder and and send Uriah to the front lines in which now Uriah's dead. You see, the slippery slope, things are getting worse and worse. Him stopping at that glance or lustful intent and look would have been the way to go. And the further down the path of sins and devastations was more and more consequential, costing him the life of his son. He doesn't lose a son if he repents at the initial lustful look and desire. You see that? It's clear that there are degrees of consequences for various types of actions. We know this intuitively. We know the difference between levels of heinous sin and we would do well to avoid going down these paths of greater and greater degrees of sin. Claiming, as some do, well, since all sin is equal in God's eyes, might as well just keep going. That's kind of, that thinking is wrong. Some sins, like the abuse of children, are objectively worse than other sins. This is obvious, but why the cliché? Why the cliché? It's so obvious, why? And I want to be clear here that I think the cliché certainly has some truth to it. But I fear that the flattening out of sin and ignoring important nuance leads to a kind of excusing of sin, And we need to let this passage and other passages like it instruct us to take sin more seriously. So that we take the root of sin seriously and not let the spiral downward to greater and greater degrees of further sinfulness. Or excuse ours and other people's sin without making sober judgments like Jesus taught us to do saying, who am I to judge or who are you to judge? Jesus calls us in the Sermon on the Mount to make sober judgments. Jesus made sober judgments. There's a reason why there's qualifications for leaders and pastors and deacons. There's a distinction. Hey, just as there are degrees of sin and judgment and guilt, there's also Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, right? There's our degrees of rewards. If you do it this way, your reward's on earth. If you do it this way, your reward's in heaven. This is worse than this. This is better. There are motives and things even in our actions. There are character qualities of degree. Not everybody's just flattened out. Not everything's the same. We do want to glorify God. We do want to repent of sin. We do want to grow. Do you see how it's important for our minds to be thinking clearly about these things? If not, everything's just arbitrary and confusing and illogical and, 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 and not according to truth and leads us and others down bad and sinful types of paths. But here's the truth to the cliche for those of you who are defending yourself of your position because there's truth to it. There really is. And I, and I think that it's important to put this out and recognize that we don't want to pridefully compare ourselves with others as if there's like, you know, hell-bound consequences for those really, really bad sins that we deem really, really bad, and then all the lesser sins are kind of off the hook. We don't want to do that. And the good heart behind that cliche that leads to that is a good thing. I'm not, I'm not correcting that. That's a good heart to have. Scripture teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans, right? It also teaches us in James that even in breaking one sin, that we're guilty, we're guilty of them all, and we're going to, to hell. So you can be like, I've only committed one sin, and it wasn't really that bad, but it was a breaking of God's law, so I'm going to be off the hook. No, James teaches us that, that sin would lead us to hell we're going to hell, but then we see other places that hell is going to be even more suffering for certain people based on degrees. That's what it says. That's what Jesus says. is more tolerable for these cities than it is for these cities to compare and contrast. But we have a lot more than that, just one sin. We've got to- so many sins. It's so overwhelming when we think of not only our sinful deeds, but also our sinful thoughts. And that should humble us. And so the humble heart behind this cliche is good. We should never have prideful hearts thinking that we're better than others, but humble hearts aware of our many, 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 many sins. Oh, that's important. But we need to also read passages like this and realize that in God's eyes, he actually sees greater and lesser degrees of sin and we'll dole out greater and lesser levels of degrees of judgment and punishment in hell, as this passage specifically says. Just sober us, humble us. And if we simply say, all sin is equal in God's eyes, we will miss the urgency and weight of this very severe and heinous sin of the spiritual laziness and indifference to Jesus pointed out here in this passage. And as a matter of fact, we've seen it already through the book of Matthew. If these cities were going to be judged in a harsher way for their knowledge of Jesus and rejection and apathy towards him, oh, we must see how much greater their sin in degree is because that's what Jesus is teaching. You won't feel the weight of this teaching if you believe in that cliche. And I ask, how much will our city, Gallatin, or other cities in America and other countries who have so much access and knowledge about Jesus and his word, how much judgment will they have? Gallatin has tons of access to Jesus, but if it doesn't cause us to believe in his exclusive discipleship and to be an exclusive disciple to him, and if it doesn't make a difference in our lives, we're gonna act just like these cities who are to be greatly judged, even greater. Oh, this is, this is humbling, this is sobering. We must flee the greater judgment that is coming because of our greater knowledge because it's not gonna be pretty if we are lackadaisical about Jesus. And it won't be pretty for our neighbors either who have so much knowledge and access and revelation of Jesus if they do not follow him now. This should heighten, I hope, we see our evangelistic urgency and zeal even in a town like ours that seems pretty moral and pretty put together to many. If they don't have a love and devotion for Jesus, this is evident, by the way, in lives transformed and lived for him. I fear that if they don't have that, if we don't have that, and, and, and people who don't have that in our context have greater judgment coming to them, the judgment of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. It's coming to people who think they're basically good and without any real needs of the radical demands of Jesus. It's coming, it is coming in a big way. They are pushing the hand away of the only one who can save them from the deadly storm. You see that? But how should we act towards Jesus instead. (laughs) What's the response that he's looking for? If the cities failed, if these ones failed and have severe judgment waiting, how can our city or how can the people in our city or this church avoid a similar fate? This leads us now to our second point number two. Proud hiding, humble finding. Look with me at Matthew 11 verses 25 through 27 now. This passage here, these verses really cut to the heart of all religious pursuits and kind of pulls back the mysterious curtain of the hidden will of God for us to see a little glimpse into it and it's glorious. Oh, it's so glorious. It's similar to what we saw in John 6 last year that the people coming to Jesus for just more food, remember that? And not having hearts for him was due to the fact that they did not have spiritual life. They just wanted to get fed physically. Their motives for seeking Jesus were called out by him, and he said they couldn't come anyways because of their hard hearts. But just like he wasn't all confused by their response then, he isn't confused by the response of these towns and the rejection of the religious leaders either. He's not. Sovereign Lord, and he sees what's going on. He knows what's going on. He's giving us a glimpse into it here. Pay attention to it. He sees clearly with perfect understanding about why these towns failed to follow him. If you're not following him, he knows why you're not following him today. He knows why the Pharisees and the scribes were against him. He gets it. He knows it. He thinks clearly about these things. Let us think clearly about these things. And he puts all these things, look at this, it's a prayer, notice, it's a prayer. He's saying, Father, he's praying. It's a direct prayer of the Son, Jesus Christ, to the Father about the intimate relationship that Father and Son have. This is an inter-Trinitarian prayer for, as we all know, that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the Scriptures clearly reveal, even though many in our day deny that truth, it's what scripture reveals. So this is the father here, the son praying to the father. Here you have Jesus, the son of God, praying to the father with crystal clear clarity as to why these people are ignoring him and rejecting him. Wow, it's amazing to see. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say we need to plan a big event to cater to the wants and needs of the crowd and soften the message so it'll be more palatable and accessible to the masses. That was not his plan. That wasn't his plan. It's never been his plan, and it shouldn't be our plan either. No, he puts the blame where the blame is due. He points out that their hard-hearted pride is keeping them from humbly submitting to him. May I suggest at this point that your friends who may have quit going to church and show no apparent signs of desire for the things of God, who might make excuses galore. They're the ones also to be blamed. They may try to shift the blame, but God knows that hearts will resist him. Hard hearts will resist them. Now, are your friends leaving our church to go to another church? Praise God for that. That's what our covenant calls us to do, you know? If we should leave from this place, may we as as soon as possible unite with another church that has similar doctrines and commitments and praise God for that. But I'm talking about people who you may or we may make excuses for every single day or they may be making excuses in their minds. God knows what's going on in their heart. God knows exactly what's going on in their heart here. He knows what's going on in our hearts. And God gives us a peek into his mysterious divine will. For us to see that God has always had a plan to reveal himself to the humble and broken while exposing and rebuking the proud and (laughs) self-reliant. Do you see it there? This is amazing. Nothing catches him off guard. The things that would discourage us and confuse us are things that he sees. He said, that's a heart that just doesn't know the word. That's a heart that hasn't submitted himself to the word and loved the gospel. It's not changed yet. How else would you expect him to act? That's what we're seeing Instead of this sad scene of the wicked increasing judgment on these cities, causing Jesus kind of confusing in doubt. Oh, what am I doing? Why did I come? He doesn't do that. He, he knows what's up. He knows that this is how the proud respond to God all along. From the old covenant into the new covenant. It's how the proud respond to the gospel all along. They reject it. They deny it. They're hardened by it. But it was the Father's will not only that the proud should be judged by their arrogant and sinful ways, but that the father would actually hide himself to the self-righteous know-it-alls based on his good pleasure and will to do it. Do you see that? The hiding of the proud, not only do they hide from God, but God is hiding truth and revelation from them. (laughs) Oh, we're gonna see this when we get... Soon in Matthew 13, in the parables, what is the purpose of parables? Why do do you speak in these veiled ways? Jesus is going to tell us. Jesus is going to tell us to reveal it to those who are humbly coming to him and to, to hide it from the proud and the arrogant, even in parables. You see that? It may seem like it's not fair. Oh, that's not fair. I don't like that kind of thing. But you see, it's exactly what Jesus has said over and over again in his earthly ministry of not. Come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see that? Or the proud have the glories of God and the good news of the gospel veiled and hidden from them, as we see here, and the examples of these unbelieving cities. The blame, though, is on them for being prideful and giving Jesus the boot or giving the disciples the boot. They're they're blamed for it. It's their hard hearts. The humble, on the other hand, okay, so how should we respond? The humble, on the other hand, those who come to God like children needing a father in desperate desperation and dependence on him, the humble who come like a child in that way, they receive not judgment for the sin they know that they have and the sin that they do have and admit, but they receive grace and mercy of Jesus as a humble person seeking a savior of sinners. You see that? Even in their sin, especially in their sin, they see it, they need a savior. People who don't think they are sinful will never go to the savior. We've seen this in scripture. It's, it's there all over. And in fact, in God's eternal wisdom, he planned to humble sinners and turn to them to accept his son as the only way that they might repent and be saved. No proud person's repenting of their sin. No proud person's coming to Jesus because of their need. If you are a believer, if you're a believer here, hear this, you are one of those humble sinners turned by God. Would you thank him for that? Would you glory, I and mean, you don't pat yourself on the back, look how great I am compared to all these prideful people. No, that would mean you're being prideful. <laughs> that would mean you're being prideful. Would you thank God for doing a work in humbling you like a child that you'd come to him in dependence? It's a work of God. But on the other hand, if you're not humbled by your sin and you're proud and hard-hearted, self-reliant, and if that's you, you're also a sinner needing to repent even if you don't think you are because the self-righteous hypocrite who was wise in their own eyes, thinking that you're much better than the childlike humble believers in your own estimation is revealing not your belief in goodness, but your unbelief and hardened hearts. But here's the thing. Ironically, those so-called wise ones are the proud ones who have no hope for salvation. Only increasingly greater and greater degrees of condemnation. Well, you might say, <laughs> that's not fair. Who is God to reveal himself to some and not others Answer here in this passage, he's God, he's God. It's kind of his agenda and prerogative, right? And his plan is our only hope. And the proud are truly proud and self-reliant and really don't want God. So they are getting what their prideful hearts warrant. And remember here, as we're gonna see There is an offer and a way of salvation offered only through Jesus exclusively, and it's not in pride and works and self-reliance and patting on our backs, but the only way is through humbly coming to Christ, which we'll now turn to in our third and final point. And number three, weary working, Savior resting. Look with me at Matthew 11 and verses 28 through 30 now for this. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So those who may complain that that's not fair the divine workings of God, and how eh, it's not fair. Notice here in this passage that the answer and message and call of Jesus goes out to all, by the way. It goes out to all. Notice it goes to everybody. But you see, only those who know they are burdened and heavy laden and needy will ever go to the one who relieves those burdens. And while it's true that God is sovereign over all things, including salvation, as our last point, and verses clearly reveal people must come. They must come to Christ if they're going to find mercy and rest. And if they don't, they will not find mercy and rest. You see that? God is sovereign. People are responsible to come to Jesus, actually. Both things are clear all over Scripture. They will not find it anywhere else but in him. And they do not receive it by ignoring and suppressing and opposing Jesus or being apathetic and ignorant and not caring and like lackadaisical. No, they must humbly go to him and see him as the gentle and lowly Savior who is there to provide mercy and grace and rest for the weary. You may feel weary today. I know, I'm sure a lot of us feel weary today. And maybe for some of you, you've lived your whole entire lives working and striving in your own strength while missing the fact that Jesus is there for the weak, not the strong, not the self-reliant, not those who have it all together in and of themselves. If you feel strong and are self-reliant and self-righteous and self-sufficient in your own being and doing, then you have no need for Jesus in your own eyes. But there is a need. See it. Recognize it. Know that you're weary in spiritual things if you're thinking that way. If you're thinking that you've got it all together, know that you're really, really confused and being really, really sinful and unbiblical and need to repent for that kind of thinking. And I want you to see the reality that any kind of working for salvation or for appearances or for your own ego and pride and reputation simply will not do. And it will leave you continually lost and on your way to even greater and greater degrees of judgment. You can't escape now the fact, and just in general, I know you all have heard these truths in the gospel and many have in our town as well. You can't escape the fact of what you're seeing in scripture, what I'm telling you here about the need to be rescued and cared for in Jesus, and not to be proud but to be humble. You know now, no hiding from the truth, just like there was no hiding from the truth in these towns. So if you're here, and you've heard the message of Jesus and the gospel, and know that only hearts that are softened to and humbled and needy before Jesus are going to avoid this storm of judgment that's coming? If, if that's you, to, to, that know that the humble repent of their sin, I call the humble, whether religious, self-righteous, and sinful pride, repenting of that pride and humble, or whether blatant and obvious, sinful people given over to deba- debauchery and open wickedness, whatever category. Remember in Luke 15, we just saw a few weeks ago, both the older brother, who had it all together, or so it seemed, and felt entitled, and the younger brother, who squandered his inheritance and ran wild, they were both needy sinners, right? But only one of them admitted it. Sometimes the religious sinners, the proud sinners, they're in a really dangerous place because they think that they're all set. they think that they're all good, and they can just explain away everything, justify away everything. And that's a dangerous place to be. Quite frankly, oh, I'd rather you just be so open and blatantly aware of your wickedness and sin, just so grievously aware than this self-righteous pride. I mean, you're never gonna come to Jesus in that way. But, but I know that he can get through to hearts like that because he got through to heart like mine, who had a profession of faith, grew up in church, thought that I was good. He can get through to hearts like that. And I think a passage like this is, is, is appealing to your heart if that's you. Jesus is the gentle and lowly savior ready to provide you rest in him if you would only just go to him. The Pharisees would offer a yoke and a teaching and a way of workspace salvation in their own made up scheme that was heavy and burdensome and hard and tiring and exhausting and impossible. Jesus' yoke, though, unlike the burdens of the Pharisees or unlike the heavy burden on an oxen's back, his yoke was easy, his burden was light because his way was a way of mercy and grace for undeserving sinners who couldn't do it themselves. He covered all our sin and guilt by not our own works or goodness, but in spite of our wickedness, he went to the cross to pay For our guilt and sin, even if our guilt and sin is religious pride. And the passage says, come to me. Do you see that? Because Jesus is calling even you today to come to him. Would you just humble yourself and come to Jesus today if you haven't? You've heard the good news. You're hearing the good news of the gospel in this church. Have you actually believed it and began following Jesus? Or do you just know about him and think he's kind of cool or okay and just kind of like a garnish in your life, just a little piece of your life? My question is, are you living for him today? Are you living for him? Are you dependent upon him? Do you see your own neediness of a soul crying out to him in desperation? Run to him if not. And if you are, praise God. He's covered your many, many sins. Praise God. Praise God. Or have you perhaps come to the realization today that you are in the category of greater judgment and greater knowledge without any real evidence of true love for God and the gospel? Are you kinda being, being convicted by that? Do you find yourself indifferent to the things of God and his word in your heart of hearts if you're honest? And if that is you, I, I really do hope and pray that this sermon has convicted you. Rather, I hope and pray that these words from Scripture that are just clear on the page that we've been seeing are doing the work to convict you. I'm not here to just simply guilt trip people and give them conviction. That's a work of the Holy Spirit doing. And if that's happening, that's a work of the Spirit. And praise God that's happening. I don't want you to be hardened like the Pharisees and just ignore the call to repentance that Jesus Yeah, to believe the gospel for the humble. The gospel is not for the proud who remain proud, but the good news of the gospel is for the proud who are made humble. I'm gonna say that again. The good news of the gospel is for the proud who are made humble, who are humbled by God and his message. A message that says, you don't have it all together. You don't have all the answers. You are not good and prim and proper and innocent. But you're not only guilty, but you're adding up and storing up guilt upon guilt for your many sins and ignorance and ignoring of Jesus and for continuing to reject and give Jesus the stiff arm, the savior of sinners. I don't want anything to do with that. If that's you, he came to earth not to save the perfect and righteous people but to save sinful and wicked people who come to their senses by God's grace and need and go to Jesus. The man who lived a perfect life and died a death on the cross to pay for the penalty of our many sins and rose three days later to prove that what he paid for there actually covers our sins. You can either be like the town that ignored the helper come to rescue them from the storm. Or you can humble yourself and listen to Christ and sense your need for him. And repent of your sins and go to Jesus who helps not those who help themselves, which is another terrible, unbiblical cliche. Because he helps not those who help themselves, but those whose sins are great. Not those who have these minor little Things and this big bucket of sameness of sin, and who really cares? There's no distinctions one way or another. No, he died for the weight of increasingly weighty sin, and he can cover every last ounce of your sin to whatever degree that it is. Praise God for that substitutionary death of Jesus. If it wasn't for him, it would have been us. Let me mark the truth of that statement. If it wasn't for Jesus, it would be you paying for your many, many sins and degrees of judgment. Because indeed, he has blotted out the sins of all kinds on the cross, hasn't he? And yours too, if you just come to him. So I just, I plead with everyone again, escape the greater degrees of judgment by coming to Jesus this day. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and soar, Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would draw sinners to yourself like only you can do through your son. We're thankful for the unity that you have with the son and that you sent him for sinners, sinners in this room who sense their need for you. I thank you for all the believers who are humble, and know of their need of you, would you just lift them up and encourage them in the gospel today? And we also pray, Lord, oh, that you would move those who have hearts that have not been awakened and alivened to the good news of the gospel for needy sinners, maybe even because they haven't seen themselves as needy sinners, would you just waken them today? Waken them right now that they might be saved, by the Savior of sinners. We say this in Christ's name, amen.